The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. This podcast discusses animals, how they benefit our society and our planet, the threats they face, and what we can do to protect them. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade. This month, we've been doing things a little bit differently than I normally would. We usually would be doing an animal of the month, but for September, I decided to do a series of takeovers by wildlife experts to let them tell their stories and share things that impact their lives, whether it's wildlife-related or not, to be able to share with others. So this week, I am joined by Jasmine Graham, the one of the co-founders of Ms. and a sawfish conservationist. So... We're going to listen to her story and what she has to share with us today. All right, and we are joined today by Jasmine Graham, who's doing her takeover. If you follow anything that's been going on on Instagram and Twitter, you will know her from Elasma Week and from Ms., which is Minorities in Shark Science. And she's here today to do her takeover and share with us some of her expertise and her experiences. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. We're all excited to hear your story, so uh, let's go ahead and dive into how Jasmine Graham became one of the more prominent uh, shark scientists that we've been seeing on Twitter lately. Oh man, that's quite a setup. Prominent, that's a big word. Oh, uh, so... I mean, in my opinion, you definitely... Awesome. Well, all right, so let's let's talk about, about my story. So it all begins kind of when I was let's say in elementary school or so, I was, I'm a military brat. So my mom was in the Air Force for the first half of my childhood. And that was an experience that is the story for another day. But I moved around a lot and my kind of home base was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is where my dad is from. That's where his entire family grew up. Most of my family on that side is still in Myrtle Beach and most of them live in the same neighborhood. Half of them live on the same street. Uh, so we, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of movement on um, that side of the family. So it was very close knit and that was really grounding for me having some people that were always going to be there and were always going to be together and was just a really great place to go back to when I was a kid and I was moving around a lot and, and constantly changing scenery and having to make new friends and things like that, being able to go back to Myrtle Beach with my dad was, was really uh, impactful in my life. So we would go and we would spend sometimes a month or two there, uh, just kind of hanging out with family since we were so far away. We would kind of just visit once, but we would stay for a really long time. I got a lot of frequent flyer miles as a child. And Myrtle Beach is a really interesting place because as the name implies, it is a beach. Uh, it's a coastal town. And you would think, okay, sure, coastal town, your family's from there. They probably are all about marine science and things like that. That's probably where this came from. That's not actually where it came from. I did a lot of fishing and a lot of eating seafood. And that's kind of what my family does. They're, they're big into seafood. I would say that most of their diet is seafood. But the, there is a very interesting cultural thing with, with Black people in the South, uh, particularly people from coastal areas where there's like the coast and the beach that's for other people, but not for us. And so going to the beach, yeah, we would go to the beach occasionally because my dad would, after I begged him to take me to the beach, he would let me go to the beach. And I had a lot of family that actually worked at hotels that were on the beach. But the idea of going to the beach was weird in my family. Why would you go to the beach? There's sand. There's animals in the water. That doesn't sound fun. So we were all about fishing and eating seafood, but not really about getting in the water. And I was one of those weird people. My family kind of nicknamed me the fish because I was always in the water, swimming around. And my mom would kind of be like, uh, 
be careful in there. There's things that live there. And I was just kind of like, there's things that live here. That's so cool. And so I was kind of the odd person uh, that was looking at tide pools and swimming towards things that were moving and alive in the water. And my family was not getting in the water. And, you know, if they did, it was up to their calves and no one was really swimming in the water uh, like I was. So that was something that was really interesting, being part of a family that was so close to the ocean, and yet I was the person that was super intrigued by it, and no one else seemed to really care. It was just a thing that was there that provided food. And so my parents actually saved up to send me to a camp at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And this was a camp called Marine Quest, and they I, th I think that I found out about it and then I just spent a year or two begging them to pay for me to go to this camp. And so they ended up saying, okay, she's asked several times now, this must be a thing that she really wants to do. And so they saved up money and I was able to go to this week long camp uh, that was a resident residential camp. And I was just excited because I thought I was going to play in the ocean. Little did I know I was going to learn that marine science was a thing that you could do as your career. And that was kind of, whoa, moment for me of, wow, you get paid to do this. This is awesome. It's a real thing you can do. <laughs> so then, of course, I came back to my parents and I said, I would be a marine scientist. And my mom said, great, I'm glad you have a goal. What is a marine scientist? And, and I kind of explained what I learned at camp and everything. And my parents were kind of like, well, I don't know anyone that's ever done this. I didn't know this was a job, but she seemed really excited about it and we're excited about it. All right, let's make this happen. And so every time people would ask me uh, when I was in high school, because I went to that camp when I was in the eighth grade, I think. And um, yeah, and so whenever I was in high school and people would kind of, you know, they start having you do those little, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your goals? Blah, blah, blah. Which is silly to ask high schoolers that. We, like, kids don't know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a grown person. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, asking kids what do they want to be when they grow up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we did a lot of that. And, and I was always kind of like, I want to work with marine animals. And people were like, okay, that doesn't seem like a real thing, but okay. And so I did a lot of research on marine biology and marine science colleges and things like that. And, and had a lot of, of talks with my guidance counselor, who of course was kind of like, oh, marine science is a very interesting major. Okay. And so that was very interesting. Um, I definitely did not have anyone in my life that was aware of marine science as a career. I was kind of just blindly going forward. Uh, guidance counselor didn't really know how to guide me aside from this school has a marine biology program. Go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I get to, I got to College of Charleston, uh, which is where I went to undergrad, and I kind of was just feeling my way around. And my mom and my dad are very practical people. And they kind of were like, well, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. Marine science seems like a very specific thing. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of them running around. So I imagine that that's a pretty hard job to get into. So maybe you should be a little bit more broad and not just tunnel yourself down. And so I actually declared my major as biology and not marine biology, so that there was still an opening for me to do a quote-unquote normal job, like go into the medical field or uh, be a veterinarian, which is my other thing, my other fallback. So I actually joined the pre-vet society, and then I figured out that getting into veterinary school is super hard, and I was like, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun. And so then I actually was like, okay, being a veterinarian is not for me. I don't particularly like people that much. So being a healthcare professional doesn't seem like it's for me. I think that marine biology is for me. I think that's just it. I'm just going to go for it. 
And then that was further solidified when I had to take organic chemistry as part of my biology major and that went not great. And so I found out that if I switched to marine biology, I did not have to take organic chemistry. I could take quantitative analysis instead, which is another chemistry class. So I was kind of like, well, that's sold because organic chemistry is hard. And so for anyone out there that is taking college classes and you're in organic chemistry and it's kicking your butt, this is not the end. Uh, you can still be successful. You can still be a marine scientist uh, if organic chemistry kicked your butt because it also kicked mine. I only took the first half of it. And I said, no, not today, Satan. I am not doing that. <laughs> And so I switched things. And sometimes, like, I just want to say for everyone, sometimes it is okay to say, sure, I could do this, but it is going to cost me my mental health and my sanity. And so I am not going to do it. And that is perfectly valid. I don't count it as quitting. I never say that I quit organic chemistry. I say that I chose my mental health and decided to take another class and change my major. And that is totally fine. I think in college, sometimes people try to make you feel bad for switching your major because of one class. And they say it's like quitting. It's not quitting. It's just saying, I don't want to do this. And that's perfectly valid to say you don't want to do something and do something else. So I did that. And uh, so that's how I kind of got back into marine biology. And I met a professor at a research matchmaking day. and. I didn't actually go to the research matchmaking day wanting to talk to him or to talk about sharks. I was actually there for sea turtles and coral reef. And then uh, the sea turtle people, the coral reef people didn't have any paid positions in their lab. And I said, ah, see the way that my finances are set up, I cannot work for free. So I was leaving the research matchmaking day, ran into Gavin and he, first of all, he was late and slightly disheveled and I ran like smack dab into him and helped him carry his stuff. And so that I think made him very human to me. And I was able to talk to him in a way that I wasn't able to connect with the other professors that were kind of, you know, ha seemed like they had it all together and were intimidate a little bit intimidating to me. So I think this was a really good like meet cute where you run into somebody that's going to be your advisor, but they're, you run into them in a very human situation where they're late and fumbling around and dropping things, and it just makes them more approachable. And so we actually started chatting while I was helping him get his stuff to the table. And he was just really excited about sharks. I don't know if you've ever heard Gavin Naylor speak, but he gets very excited all the time. He's a great speaker. He's really engaging. He just has a real passion for sharks. And so I kind of just got excited about sharks by osmosis. And I was like, I think you're cool. You think sharks are cool. So I think sharks are cool. This is cool. And so we exchanged email information and he said, I don't have a position in my lab that's paid at the moment, but I will let you know if something comes up. And I said, great. And I went on about my merry life. And the next semester he emailed me and he said, there is a program called a research experience for undergraduates that happens out of Fort Johnson Marine Lab, out of our um, College of Charleston's Marine Lab. They have a program and he said, you should apply for it. And so I did and I got it and I got a spot in his lab. And I worked with him on a hammerhead evolution project. And I had so much fun with it that I kept working uh, for the rest of my college career. So I started that the summer after my freshman year and I kept doing it all the way until I graduated. And so at the end, I had a bachelor's essay, which was basically the equivalent of a master's thesis because I had worked on it for three years. I think it's maybe... 20 pages shorter than my actual master's thesis is. It was, a, it was a big undertaking that I did. I'm actually working on publishing it now and I'm looking back and reading it and I think to myself, wow, you are killing it in undergrad. This is actually really well <laughs> you wrote as an undergraduate student. 
And I'm, it's something I'm very proud of because I was expecting to revisit that and be like, woof, what were you doing, little Jasmine? But little Jasmine <laughs> made me proud. She, she has it on point. Uh, so super excited about that. And doing the project with him really got me interested in sharks. And I did a couple of other things while I was an undergrad to test the waters and other areas of marine science, but I kept coming back to sharks. And so whenever it got time for me to graduate, he asked the question, what's the next step? And I said, I don't know, Gavin, I don't know what I want out of life. I don't know what to do. I'm so confused. And he said, well, what do you like about what you're doing? And I said, I like sharks. I like working with sharks that are weirdly shaped. And he said, okay, what do you not like? And I said, I don't like working in the lab. And he said, all right, so you are interested in doing more field work and you're interested in weirdly shaped animals. And so he actually connected me with the person that would become my master's advisor, Dean Grubbs, who was looking for a student to work on sawfish which is a very weirdly shaped elasmobranch. And I also was interested in conservation. I wanted to work in the field. It was just a perfect little lineup. And so um, Gavin emailed Dean and Dean said, great, I don't have any money, <laughs> but no. I take you as a student. And so we worked together and we applied for the graduate research fellowship program, which is offered through the National Science Foundation. And this is, and this is a tale of doing things, even though you don't think that you have a chance at all. So I had so many people tell me, oh, no one gets the GRFP hardly. It's, it's, you know, it's super competitive. I had other people tell me, getting it before you get into graduate school when you don't have a real project set up already is super hard. And I applied anyway and I got it. And I woke up and I actually had an email from Gavin that I saw before I saw the actual email saying that I got the award. And it said, congratulations. All it said was congratulations. And I was like, what? Congratulations for what? What? And then I scrolled through the rest of my emails and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so it was really, it was really intense and dramatic. I ran around my whole house. I have I had seven roommates in college. We lived in a historic house that was um for people majoring in Spanish. I ran around the house just kind of yelling excitedly in the morning and people were like, what is happening? What is, what is she doing? <laughs> um, so that was great. And so then once I got that, it was smooth sailing to come and work in Dean's lab. And I really enjoyed my time in Dean's lab. Both Dean and Gavin were really great mentors, really influential people in my career. And I also was connected with a lot of other people in my time at Florida State working on sawfish. I met the entire sawfish recovery team and I just fell in love with what I was doing. Having my science mean something to management and policy and having these direct links, knowing that my research is going to one day be cited by NOAA whenever they make protections and management decisions for sawfish is just really great and it makes me feel very fulfilled and so I plan to keep working on sawfish forever. Uh, in fact everyone on the sawfish recovery team told me that once you start researching sawfish you're not allowed to ever stop. It's a cult that you can't get out of <laughs> and so I am happily in the sawfish cult and uh, I finished my master's and was kind of trying to figure out my next steps. I wanted to continue working on sawfish, so I knew that I needed to go somewhere. There were sawfish and sawfish research happening. And so I made really good friends with Tanya Wiley of Havenworth uh, Coastal Conservation. And she does sawfish stuff here in Tampa Bay. And so I reached out to her and I said, hey, you want, some help down there and she said yes but I can't pay you I don't have any money oh <laughs> story God. of my life no one ever has any money so I said okay I've got to figure out a way to get to Tampa and 
be able to pay my bills and still be able to do softness research. We're gonna have to get a little creative here. And so I firmly believe that if you are meant to walk through a door, it will open for you. And so I just kind of started looking at things and I just kind of was like, all right, let's see what happens. And I had a job pop up at Moat Marine Laboratory which is a place that I always kind of had a dream of working at because I had read a whole bunch of books about Eugenie Clark, who is a, the founder of Moat and was just a really phenomenal shark scientist. And so I saw this job opening at Moat Marine Laboratory and I read it and it was to coordinate a program that was geared towards increasing diversity in marine science and I said oh man this is perfect because that's a passion of mine that I already do in my side life I always do outreach I'm always looking to help other minority students get involved in marine science and so that kind of just lined up perfectly and then I kept reading the job description and it said part-time and I said no I cannot <laughs> move to Sarasota and live off of part time. And so I very sadly stopped writing my cover letter because at this point, this is an important part of the story that I left out. I was driving to do some research with Dean. Dean was in the, Dean was driving. I was in the passenger seat of this truck towing this 26 foot Calcutta. And I saw this job description. I got really excited. I started typing a cover letter on my phone because I'm a crazy person. And then I finished this cover letter that I typed so excitedly. And I read the description carefully to make sure that I addressed all of the, the points. And then I realized that it was part-time and I said, no. And then I sadly closed that little Google doc that I was typing on my phone and was sad. But then a couple weeks later, I saw it again and it had been bumped up to full time. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> that I can do. And so I reopened my cover letter that I had typed on my phone. Surprisingly, there it was really well written and there was only a couple typos. And I was just kind of like, look at you go, Jasmine, killing it, writing great cover letters on your phone in a car. <laughs> and so I sent off my documentation within two days. I had an interview. I had the interview. They told me that they were going to have me come down for an in-person interview. But then two days later, they just called me and they were like, "Never mind. We don't need you even to come. You have the job. And I was like, yes. So it ended up being perfect. So I moved down here to Sarasota. I have a very fulfilling job where I help uh, minority students get into marine science and I get to do my sawfish stuff with Tanya on the side because I live 20 minutes away from her and it's just great and then I started MISS uh, which is minorities in shark sciences and that just kind of started at random I kind of always told myself that I wanted to start a nonprofit that would help minority students get into shark science or get into marine science and I always had this dream that was kind of on the back burner of of being able to do science but being able to do science with up-and-coming undergraduates high schoolers things like that to get them involved in an early age and this is one of the reasons why I gravitated towards Tanya because Tanya has her own nonprofit. And she also runs a camp called Coastal Brigades in Texas, which does kind of what I wanted to do. And the first time I met Tanya, I told her, which is maybe coming on too strong for the first time you meet someone, but I'm a quirky, socially awkward person. And I said, I want to be your mini me, teach me your ways. And I just <laughs> never let her go and I just follow her around and watch what she does and try and gain all of the information that I can from her because she's just an amazing person that I look up to a lot. And so I had this opportunity where we were talking about kind of starting this organization 
fun fact that most people don't know, neither me, Carly, Jada, or Amani have ever met each other in person. Fun fact. We started an entire organization without ever meeting each other face to face, um, which is crazy. But we found each other on Twitter and I had talked to Jane and Amani before over the phone when they were asking me about Dean's lab and what it was like uh, when they were interested in applying there, but I didn't really have any conversations with them besides that. And so we kind of all found each other on Twitter and got really excited that we weren't the only black women in shark science. And Carly jokingly said, let's start a club. And then it just, snowballed from there and we actually did start a club which turned into an organization which turned into this huge thing uh, that none of us expected when we launched we weren't expecting it to blow up as much as it did i think it was a a combination of the right time the right people and then just the the personalities of us that we had. Uh, we just really worked well together. And I think we all have these complementary strengths that really make us able to have a really successful organization. And it's just been great. We have 142 members now. We have representatives from 15 different countries. Uh, we've raised $32,000, I think was the last number last time I checked a couple days ago. Oh. We have formed partnerships. We've got opportunities. Not only, Originally, we set out to just have workshops where we would be able to bring eight, we, originally it was nine, nine people to come aboard the field school vessel, the Garvin, to do some shark tagging and get some experience with shark research and shark handling, and then also some professional development. That was gonna be our crowning achievement with MIST. That's what we originally set out to raise money for. That was our original goal. And it really just blew up from there. So now we're doing not one, but two workshops. We're able to have 18 people. And we have partnerships with several organizations now where we're doing outreach, uh, where we're doing outreach with SeaQuest, which are some aquariums, a series of aquariums around the United States that have uh, aquariums and malls. And they're just mostly inland. So it's kids that won't usually have access to the ocean. And so bringing the ocean to them. And we have partnerships with Bemini Shark Lab to have two totally funded internships for MESS members to go to Bimini Shark Lab for two months to get experience working in shark research. We have partnerships with Oceans Research in South Africa to be able to send MESS members there to do research um, at no cost to them. And so we're really excited about everything that we've been able to do and we're able to provide upwards of, of 20 MISS members with opportunities to get involved in shark research without them having to spend a dime, which is something that we never really imagined. We started out trying to do it for nine and we're suddenly at 21 plus uh, that we're going to be able to help. And so that's really exciting. And having all 142 people in our little Slack group and being able to exchange ideas and, and network. And then we launched the Friends of Miss for people that didn't identify as women of color, but wanted to be part of what we were doing and wanted to be allies of Miss. And we've had lots of applications from Friends of Miss. We've had Lots of support from large shark organizations like the American Elasmobank Society and some other groups that have been really supportive of what we're doing. And so I'm really excited about everything that we have going on. I feel like at this point, the sky's the limit and we're just looking to really change the face of shark science. We want it to be whenever you close your eyes and picture a shark scientist, it's not always some white dude 
because there are so many other flavors of shark scientists out there and we're we're working with several uh, production companies and and things like that to help get more diversity on TV shows and in Shark Fest and Shark Week and all of the you know PBS and BBC and all of those programs where they're showing shark research we want it to be a diversity of sharks but also a diversity of shark scientists and that's something that we're really passionate about and that's the story of how Jasmine got here and what Jasmine does and I know that that was a lot of information so <laughs> Kristen any thoughts questions comments I mean whoa <laughs> that was that was that was a that was a journey that was I mean, first off, shout out as a fellow uh, military brat. I was on the other end of the spectrum, though. Uh, both my parents were in the Marine Corps. But still, I, I totally understand that life. And I definitely didn't grow up with people who were uh, in any kind of STEM field or were really looking to put me in a STEM field. <laughs> and I actually, uh, following your parents' advice, I actually was going to be an English major originally until I realized that I hated it. And I dropped my English major and decided that I was going to do a STEM field instead. So, I mean, I, I was listening to you and I'm just like, I can relate so hard to <laughs> so much of what you went through. And it's just, it's incredible. It's, it feels like a disservice to say that you were lucky because obviously you weren't just lucky. You worked really hard and you were really focused on, you know, getting these opportunities. Like you didn't just wait for an opportunity to land in your lap. You really worked hard to pursue these things. And I think that's always a really important story for people is we sometimes romanticize college work and school and all these things. And it's like, oh yeah, if, if our generation was raised with, if you go to college and you do all these things right, you know, that dream job will just land in your lap and you'll be set for life doing something you love. And it's not quite true but you've really uh you really broke the mold with how things went for you because I feel like you know and I'm sure you've heard plenty of stories of people where it didn't quite work out as well for them but it's really amazing that you've been able to take your opportunities and all of the things that you've had the ability to do in your life and you've turned that energy towards giving people similar opportunities you're like you know what I wasn't given this opportunity and I wish I'd had this opportunity to do things like, you know, I'm sure you, many of us would absolutely love to be able to go do field research for free while we're in school and not have to stress the financial burden. And here you are creating that for people and even better people who are historically neglected in a lot of this. So, I mean, I'm not sure how much there is to ask at this point. I think the only questions I might have is, um, one, since you've worked with sawfish, what are some of the species you've worked with? And two, do you have a favorite species of sawfish? So I work with the small tooth sawfish. Uh, my only interactions with any other sawfish species has been large tooth sawfish in aquariums. Uh, so obviously I'm going to say small tooth sawfish. No shade at the large tooth sawfish though. We used to have large tooth sawfish in the United States. Unfortunately, they went locally extinct. And so they exist in other parts of the world, but not in the United States anymore. Sad face. Uh, so unfortunately, I never got to work with them. But the small tooth sawfish, gotta love those little guys. Well, they're not little. They get to be 16 feet long. So they're pretty <laughs> big, but... <laughs> yeah, we have, a, we have the large tooths at the National Aquarium. And so actually those have been my only interaction with uh, sawfish as well. I've tried to find if I could explore other facilities or places where I could track them down. But of course, there's such, you know, I, I don't think there's any sawfish that isn't endangered, right? That is correct. The sawfish family is actually one of the most endangered groups of elasmobranchs. And I guess that's a relevant point to bring up too is um, sawfish are a type of ray within the elasma branchs, or at least their closest relatives are things like stingrays, as people would usually think of rays as flat and squishy things, and sawfish mm -hmm. are not quite that. And uh, of course, they're distinguished from the saw sharks, which have their fancy little mustaches and the gills a little higher on the body. 
<laughs> fancy little mustaches. I love that. <laughs> but I, I have to admit, I'm like you, I'm, I'm partial towards the sawfish. And part of it is the fact that they are endangered. You know, I think whenever a species is in peril of disappearing, it makes them you know, easier to love because we don't want to see them go. And like you said, they're a, they're a weirdly shaped animal <laughs> by all accounts. So it really, it really fit your bill. Like you're, I wish I had an advisor like yours and mentors, because let me tell you what, when I describe some of the things I want to do with my life, I get some pretty funny looks. And I mean, to be oh, fair, I'm looking more into models. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I get funny sweeter. looks all the time. Pretty much I would say at every stage I had someone give me a funny look uh, or someone say, mm, you might want to have a fallback plan. And I'm just one of those people that is just like, well, if I fail, I fail. Like the worst thing that happens is I fail and you know, that's life. And I learn from it and I go to something else, but I'm certainly not going to not try and so I kind of just went full steam ahead and just like I said, I thought to myself, if I'm supposed to, if a door is supposed to, I'm supposed to walk through a door, then it'll open. I just got to keep trying different doors. It might not be the door that I thought I was going to go through and I have to go around, but <laughs> eventually I'll get there. And so I think a lot of it is just not I so I say that it's being in the right place at the right time but you actively have to walk around <laughs> until you end up at the right place at the right time if you wander around long enough eventually things will align is what I found and it doesn't always align in the way you think it's going to align so that's that's my advice to people is to just be aware of what you want at that particular moment in time and that can change and you can change your mind hour to hour minute to minute but whatever you want in that particular time do that and see where that goes until you don't want to do it or you hit a roadblock and then change directions that's the only thing you can do in life whenever I was really little people would ask me what do I want to be when I grow up and I thought that that was just too big of a question, but also thought that it was, I knew what they were asking, but I didn't think that that was really what was important. And so I would answer with, I want to be happy. So what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be happy. And I've had that mantra my whole life is whatever I'm doing is the second I'm not happy doing it. Well, I'm going to do something else. And that has caused people to look at me strangely. I mean, when I changed my major and I just kind of switched out of biology because organic chemistry was too hard, people were like, oh no, you can do it. You just got to study and you can push through it. And I'm like, I know that I can do it, but I don't want to. <laughs> and I dropped out <laughs> of the magnet program in high school because I just didn't find it fulfilling and I wanted to go a different direction with my classes. And they could not understand why someone that was acing all of their classes wanted to leave the program. And they said, it's not because I can't do it. It's because I don't want to. <laughs> and that's okay to say that you don't want to do something. I think in our society, we just like to push and push and push and push and like overcome all of these obstacles and overcoming obstacles is great when it gets to you to where you want to go. But I'm not going to pointlessly go through obstacles. That's silly. You don't even want to go there. Let me just go over here where there's not an obstacle. Especially if you can take the easier path to the same end goal too. Like I think that's part of the problem is I understand that some people feel like, you know, uh, trial by fire makes you stronger. And to a certain extent, like struggles can make people stronger. But to needlessly suffer for as long as some people do to reach the goals that they want is, is not really improving anything. If anything, it, you know, like you said, when it comes to people's mental health, it can take a toll. So I think it's, I think it's excellent advice that you really should be looking out for yourself in the long run. It's not just about your career, but you know, are you going to be healthy and happy at the end of this journey that you're taking? And if you're not, it might not be worth it to do it the way you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that people think that you have to do one thing. That's false. 
I think when I was little, I wanted to be like five things. And <laughs> my parents were like, yeah, you can, you can be a basketball playing gymnast that is a veterinarian. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and, and I think having that attitude is great. I mean, I do lots of things. I'm a scientist. I'm a instructor. I'm a social justice person. I'm a, I'm a lot of things all at once. And I think that all parts of me are fulfilled because I'm doing all of these things. And I think that's because I never let someone tell me that I had to give up doing something to do something else. Uh, even whenever I was young, I would, I mean, there was a period in time where I was in drama club and playing basketball at the same time and the basketball season and our production overlapped by two weeks. And for that two weeks, I was in basketball practice with a phone in my sports bra and I had people call me before my lines, like one scene before my lines and it would vibrate and I would just run straight out of the gym across the campus of my high school to the auditorium, say my lines and run back <laughs> and continue practicing. Oh my and goodness. people were like, you know, at one point you got to pick something. And I'm like, no, I love both of these things. I'm going to do both of them. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because they both make me happy and I want to do both of them. And so I did <laughs> that. <laughs> and I did the same thing when I got to college. And they said, uh, I don't know that you can do musical theater and Spanish and science, you got to pick one thing. You can't do all of these things. I'm like, well, all of these things make me happy and they all make me happy for different reasons. So as long as I'm able to do all of them, I'm going to do all of them. So I would do random productions in the summers and I had Spanish classes. I studied abroad twice, which is probably an excessive amount. But again, I wanted to study abroad and my scholarship covered me studying abroad. So I was like, I'm going to study abroad again. And um, so, yeah, I do a lot of things that people are like, mm, is that a good idea, Jasmine? And I'm like, I don't know, but it'll make me happy. So I'm going to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's, it's such a great mentality to have. It's such a great way to live. And I think that that's a, a really great message to pass on to people. And it's, it's really amazing that you and Jada and Amani and Carly have all been able to you know, collectively come together because from what I've seen of all of you guys, and it's largely through Twitter interactions, is you're all very passionate people, not just about sharks, but about, you know, being more inclusive and helping people who may not necessarily have the same opportunities to help provide these new opportunities for them to help them exceed their goals. And it's, it's just absolutely incredible, like watching how quickly this formed too, because I felt like like you said, like things seem to snowball, but obviously I saw the snowballing from a different standpoint because for me, you know, 2020 started out pretty rough and a lot of things happened and in retaliation for everything that was happening, you know, we got the black AF and STEM, uh, we got black birders week and all those things snowballed. And by the time shark week, was coming up this year, uh, you know, you guys were popping up with Ms. And then we had a Lasma week. And every time I check in on things, like, I feel like it's one of those like videos where you look away and you look back and the cat's like slowly getting closer and closer. <laughs> and every time I would check on Ms., you know, like you said, there was just more big news coming out of Ms. And it's like, wow, this, this really went from like, you know, a, really cool sounding project of you know promoting minorities and shark sciences to not just promoting but actively engaging with the community and providing them with uh like you said free opportunities to do incredible work that would progress their career and enrich their lives and it's just it's astounding what you guys have been able to do in less than a year i i can't imagine how awesome it must be for you guys to have had these accomplishments happen as quickly as they did. And it's definitely going to be something that I hope resounds beyond this year. Like I keep telling everybody, like, I hope it isn't just, you know, Black Birders Week 2020. I hope it's Black Birders Week, like annually. Like, I don't want this to be like a one-time thing. I would love to keep seeing these things reoccur because not only has it been empowering for 
the black community, but for those of us on the outside, it's, you know, it's incredibly educating for us. And it's so much easier for me when I'm in certain situations where people are like, oh, well, I just, you know, people are talking about diversity, but I just don't see that many black scientists. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you been on Twitter this year? (laughs) Were you living under a rock? Like, how did you miss all the incredible talent that came out this year across so many different disciplines of, you know, not just biology, but chemistry and, and neurology. Like we had so many great weeks promoting people and it it really helps those of us on the outside, you know, help increase visibility and learn more about the community and be able to be a lot more involved because it's hard to be an ally for some people that I know because they don't do much in social media. So they're like, how can I be an ally? How can I help? And now I have the ability to take the tools that you guys have provided through your organizations and pass that on to people that may not see the same visibility that I do. And so, you know, you're not just enriching the lives of your target audiences, but you're enriching the lives of those of us who want to continue to help and support these communities as well. And it's just, it's really kind of helped turn 2020 around for some of us. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, just kind of a final thought, something that's really important that I hope that all the people listening to this podcast get out of this is that everyone's journey is unique and all journeys are valid and that there are people out here doing things just silently not getting noticed there are people out here doing things where their work is purposefully being buried Uh, there are people out here doing things that other people are taking credit for and so it's really important to think about who you're seeing who you're listening to who you're interacting with are you getting the full story are you getting everyone's experiences or are you just going off of one group's experiences. So I think in science, it's, it's very prevalent and, and obvious, but in a lot of areas, this happens where you have one group of people. So in science, it's, well, in a lot of things, it's white men who come from privileged backgrounds in, term, in terms of, you know, having money or, you know, being financially stable that go point A to point B in a straight line, they say, I'm going to do this thing. And then they go to college and then they go to grad school and then they do a postdoc and then they get a job at a university and everything is boom, boom, boom. And it's more or less a straight path. But there are so many people that get to the same point doing the same science, but they have to go a different path. And whether that looks like someone that starts their career at 40 or someone that goes to community college and then goes to college and then maybe has to take time off to raise a family or maybe they have to take time off because they have to take care of a a relative or a loved one. I think that a lot of times we think that all of those things preclude you from being at the same level as all of the people that took the straight path, but you know, we all get there some of us took the scenic route and I like to say that we learned more along the way. And so I think that it's important when you're thinking about scientists, something that makes me cringe a lot is when people use the phrase real scientists, because that, that kind of implies that there are people that are not real scientists. And it makes you go, well, what do you mean when you say real scientist? Do you mean someone with a PhD? Do you mean a white guy? Do you mean someone that has their own lab? Do you mean blah, blah, blah? Because none of those things are necessary to be a scientist. And I think that we have this vision of who a scientist is and we need to be, we need to broaden that. I am a scientist. I don't have a PhD. There are people that are scientists that, that don't even have master's degrees. There are people that are, that are scientists that don't have bachelor's degrees. A degree does not make you a scientist. A degree does not make your knowledge inherently more valuable than someone else's. A degree does not 
change the validity of your experiences. And I just think that that's really important. And I hope that that's what people take away from this podcast is that every path is different. Every person is different. Everyone's background is different. And all of those things are necessary for us to actually make progress in science. If we all had the same experiences and we all took the same path, we would all see the same things and we would not have the ability to be innovative because no one would have seen the outside perspective. I have a unique perspective because I come from a family that is on the coast that like my dad's side of the family is from a, a lower economic background and I have a different side. And so whenever I go to fisheries meetings and things like that, and they're talking about fisheries management and they're demonizing people that are going out and not following the rules of fishing, I say, okay, as someone that knows people that sometimes keep fish that are not regulation size, they are just trying to eat. So maybe we should just chill out for a second and consider that. And, and people that haven't had that experience wouldn't even think twice about that. And so I think it's really important to have a diverse set of voices, people from different backgrounds, and we should be welcoming and not exclusionary. And we should not try and tell people who is and isn't a scientist. I have people ask me all the time, at what point do you say you're a scientist? And I said, if you've ever asked a question and done some work to find the answer, as far as I'm concerned, you're a scientist. Well, that certainly makes me feel a little bit better about myself. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's a fantastic message. I, I wholeheartedly agree that we should definitely be more holistic in our approaches to conservation and our discussions around sciences, because it has largely been co-opted by a very select group of people. and it's it's wonderful seeing people like you and Carly, Jada and Amani who are working really hard to expand and be more inclusionary of people who, like you said, don't necessarily represent what people stereotypically see as scientists. So this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It was an amazing story. It's so cool that you've been able to work with this really incredible group of uh, Elasma Branks and certainly a very underrepresented group of elasma branks. And just, I mean, the work that you and your friends have done to really promote minorities in science is incredible. And I'm definitely gonna be plugging Ms. and hopefully anything else that comes up because sadly elasma wink is already gonna be over, but Hopefully you guys have some other cool stuff coming up in the future and I will definitely be happy to share that so people can see the really cool work that you all are doing. I said you all. <laughs> Y'all. This is what happens when I work in education is everybody's like, oh, you should talk more like properly. And I'm like, but what's wrong with y'all? <laughs> there is nothing but wrong yeah, with y'all. <laughs> I know. I, I grew up in a family. It's ironic. My mom's from the South. My father's from the Midwest. They grew up saying y'all, but because they were told as children that y'all is a word that unintelligent people use, they would, they would tell us not to say it. And now as an adult, I'm trying to remind myself that it's okay to say y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, that is something that I have an issue with as well. And and it's, it's, a, it's a super battle because I, I have a background in linguistics. That's one of the many things that I studied in college while I was running oh around being happy. And I, like in linguistics, one of the things that's the tenet of linguistics is there is no language or dialect that is incorrect. They were all valid. And so once I started learning that, I actually started relaxing my own speech back into what is normal and what is natural for me because I don't talk like how I talk. I don't know if that makes sense, but I have, I have, two, I have two ways that I talk. One that's like when I'm relaxed and around people that I feel like I can be myself around and then ways that I talk when I'm in professional settings and I'm like, why do I do that? It's so annoying. <laughs> but I've been so conditioned and pre-programmed. I mean, occasionally I code switch and people in a professional settings will be like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it's something that I've been working really hard at because I think it's really important to hear, to have people, especially when I'm doing outreach, 
that I, yeah, I talk like that. Yeah, I am Southern and black and we have a very unique way of talking and that's the way I talk. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that it's really important to just, I just want to normalize just general speech patterns. So we're all conforming to this way that no one actually speaks, which is silly. <laughs> No, I, I 100% agree. I need to, I've been telling myself to get away from it because in my, in my podcasts, for the most part, like I have what my partner calls my customer service voice. And that's, and that's how I talk because, you know, it's supposed to be this nice welcoming, like, you know, voice, but I was talking with uh, Rhiannon and because she and I actually did video over Zoom, we were making faces at each other the whole time and laughing. And she's like, you know, I'm so glad that you did this because I feel like I can talk like normal. And I'm sitting here like, this is this this is more normal me. Like people are going to listen to this podcast and go, who is talking? Is that still Kristen? Because <laughs> it's just <laughs> like you said, it's it's a completely different way to talk. And I definitely want to move away from my self-censoring basically and make sure that I'm talking more comfortably as long as people know what I'm saying I mean that's all that really matters yeah and it's it's hard to to shave off those societal things I'm slowly working at it I I mean three years ago I stopped relaxing my hair and wore started wearing it in its natural state it was a very mind-wrecking thing where my mom was kind of like okay this is a choice like there are some people that won't hire you if you come into an interview and your hair is like that. And I'm like, I accept that. And I've decided that I don't want to work for those people and I'm just going to go. <laughs> and so I've started, you know, wearing my hair naturally. I've started just being me and talking how I talk and letting that be a thing. And I still, I mean, this is still not how I talk all the time. It's, it's and I you know I'm so ingrained to it that I'm like in a setting that I deem quote unquote professional and I switch my speech versus if I walk into some place and it's with my friends and everything I talk a different way and I I mean the first person that pointed out to me was in college and they said like Jasmine there is a point during the night where you start talking differently. Like that's because I'm tired and I've stopped filtering and monitoring my speech. <laughs> um, so if I stay up late, I just turn into regular Jasmine and it's really funny. And like when I talk to people that, you know, cause you have to, like you said, be understandable. And there are some like slang and weird Southern things that people are like, what are you saying? And I don't say those things. Uh, but when I get around people, but know what I'm talking about and I can say those things I just go off and we'll just be bouncing off of each other and then people will come in and they'll be like I have no idea what you guys are saying what is, what is happening oh <laughs> uh, that's awesome it's and yeah it's 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 great that you have that too I think that's really important is you know I, I, I'm not going to try to open up a can of worms as we're wrapping things up, but um, tone policing is definitely something that, that has come up more than once recently on uh, social media as far as how people dictate how people slash women slash people of color are supposed to talk. I know that uh, Cardi B has been a real controversial figure because of how she chooses to express herself. And it's one of those things where I... I don't listen to her personally, but at the same time, I like her because I feel like she, like she knows. She knows what she's doing. She knows that what she's doing is going to stir the pot. And it's, it's her way of kind of, you know, rebelling against that, you know, those societal expectations that tell her that she can't discuss these things. She's not supposed to say it that way, that she's unintelligent and all these different things because of how she chooses to express herself. And I'm like, how unintelligent can she be? She's like insanely rich. She can treat herself. She can do all these things that I can only dream of. I mean, how unintelligent can she be simply for choosing to talk this way? I think you guys have kind of missed the point in that for all your hate towards her for what she does, she's still very successful, very popular, and probably a lot happier than her critics are. So I think a lot of those people kind of miss it when they're trying to tone police her. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a huge problem. And 
one of the things that I tell people is I like to nip tone policing in the bud by pointing it out before I even say the thing. <laughs> and so I'm like, now that I've brought this to your attention, now if you say something, you're going to look real bad. Um, so usually I'll say something like, at the risk of sounding like an angry Black woman to you, this is how I think about this in this issue. And then at that point, that puts the ball in their court of like, are you going to admit that you're tone policing me? Or are you going to back down and shut up? <laughs> That's a real good strategy. And I'm glad that I brought that up because I'm sure that there are possibly other women of color that might listen to this and go, you know what? That's a good point. <laughs> I'm going to want to do that in the future because, I mean, it, it really is such a big issue. But again, I'm not trying to open up a can of worms and keep you any longer. I think I already said it, but I'll say it again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. That was it was really cool. And like I said before, definitely going to make sure that I plug plenty of the stuff that you guys are posting. And as new opportunities and things come up, I'll be sure to share that. And anybody who's listening should go check them out, both Jasmine and Ms. Um, I know that you guys are on Twitter and Instagram. You're not on Facebook, are you? We do have Facebook. Yes, we are. Miss um, underscore Elasmo on Facebook as well. We also have a YouTube, which has all of the videos from Elasma Week, so definitely be sure to check that out. And we have a website, www.missalasmo.org, and there's a donate button there if you feel so inclined. Or if you are a minority in shark science and you want to join, please go join Ms. too, because obviously you guys have some really incredible opportunities to share with people who are either pursuing or possibly already studying this. And be sure to check out Jasmine, who I know, I know you on Twitter, because basically Twitter is like the only social media I use with any seriousness anymore. And you're uh, at Elasmo underscore, underscore gal, right? Correct. Yeah. And you, I mean, I know that a lot of the stuff that's been posted between uh, you, Jada, Amani, and Carly has largely been Ms. But I mean, all of you guys share some really incredible stuff. Carly and Amani and Jada are all sharing their shark sciences as well. Jada does her, um, oh, what are those animal? Yeah, the animal facts videos, which I think she's, they come from TikTok, right? But she puts yes, them on Twitter. Yes, they do. And Amani does how it pants. So I highly recommend oh God, yes. you follow her at curly <laughs> underscore biologist because she does these hilarious doodles of animals and the various ways that they could possibly wear pants. And it's great. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to, I should just go ahead and plug them on uh, Twitter. So for Carly, it is at C-A-R-L-E-E-M-J underscore. And then for Jada, she, I love her. Of course, her screen name has always been great. So she is so fishtication. So it's um, S-O-F-I-S-H-T-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. And then for Amani, she, like uh, Jasmine just said, she's the curly underscore biologist. And so you can follow all of these wonderful ladies on Twitter. Some of them might have Instagram and Facebook, but I think a lot of people listening to the podcast know how I feel about those two places. <laughs> But Ooh, still, you should go check them out. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, I ended up, my, I deleted my personal social media on those. And basically, I just left my podcast up on them. But with all the drama and things happening this year, I ended up eliminating all my social media, but Twitter, pretty much. So <laughs> good for you. Yeah, it's, it's done a world of good for me. I like how Twitter really lets you control how you interact with other people better than Instagram and Facebook do. And not just that, but when I report people for saying things that are racist, Twitter actually follows through and ends up deleting or banning things. So I'm just like, thanks for taking action. <laughs> Facebook hasn't done this for me in like 20 years. So anyway, thanks again so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your night. And I am super stoked to be sharing your story with everybody on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening in on Jasmine's story. If you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to email me. My email is thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com and check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. 
On social media, you can find me under The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. You can leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com to help support the podcast. And if you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, here are some other really cool wildlife and science-based podcasts that you can check out. All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, The Wildlife Podcast, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, Animals to the Max, Varmints Podcast, Amazing Wildlife Podcast, Just the Zoo of Us, The Casual Birder, Cicada Lounge, and Strange Animals Podcast, which are all safe for work. There's also Keeper Chat, which is a fantastic podcast, but it is definitely not safe for work. There are also some really great podcasts that you can check out that focus on other sciences or just science in general. Not all of them are safe for work, so be sure to double check on those before you listen to them in any kind of professional space where you might not be allowed to, especially Petri dish. (laughs) But there's also Planthropology, Bald Scientist, Dear Grad Student, Better Than Human, Curiosity Cake, Mad Scientist, What Are You Gonna Do With That, Papa PhD, Breaking Math, Curiosity Killed the Rat, That's What I Call Science, and The Scientist Podcast, and that scientist with two T's at the end. I am also on a non-wildlife podcast called Legend of Portalcast, which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra, so if you're into that, be sure to check that out too. Anyway, I'll be back next week with our next guest takeover, so be sure to stay tuned for that.